If you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 10, that'll be our sermon text for this morning, Leviticus chapter 10. Uh, if you don't own a Bible or don't have a Bible or forgot to bring your Bible with you, uh, let me encourage you, there are some Bibles in a table at the back just outside the door. Feel free to grab one of those. And you can uh, not only use it during our worship service this morning, but you should also feel free to keep that Bible, take it home with you, write your name in it, bring it back week after week as we study God's Word together. Before we read Leviticus chapter 10, let's pray together. Please pray with me. Our Father, we, um, we do long to hear from you. Uh, we long to hear your word. Uh, we long for your word to speak deeply into our souls. We pray that you would work now by your Holy Spirit as we read, as we think about your word, that uh, your spirit would be doing his work in our hearts and challenging us and transforming us and remolding us and reshaping us into the image of Jesus, that we would hear from you, that we would hear of your grace, and that by that we would be transformed. Um, Pour out your spirit on us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Leviticus chapter 10. Now Nadab and Abihu, sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. And Aaron Held his peace. And Moses called Mishael and Elzaphon, the sons of Uziel, the uncle of Aaron, and said to them, Come near, carry your brothers away from the front of the sanctuary and out of the camp. So they came near and carried them in their coats out of the camp, as Moses had said. And Moses said to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his sons, Do not let the hair of your heads hang loose, and do not tear your clothes, lest you die, and wrath come upon all the congregation. But let your brothers, the whole house of Israel, bewail the burning that the Lord has kindled. And do not go outside the entrance of the tent of meeting, lest you die, for the anointing oil of the Lord is upon you. And they did according to the word of Moses. The Lord spoke to Aaron, saying, Drink no wine or strong drink, you or your sons with you, when you go into the tent of meeting, lest you die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. You are to distinguish between the holy and the common, and between the unclean and the clean. And you are to teach the people of Israel all the statutes that the Lord has spoken to them by Moses. Moses spoke to Aaron and to Eleazar and Ithamar, his surviving sons, Take the grain offering that is left of the Lord's food offerings and eat it unleavened beside the altar, for it is most holy. You shall eat it in a holy place, because it is your due and your son's due from the Lord's food offerings, for so I am commanded. But the breast that is waved and the thigh that is contributed, you shall eat in a clean place, you and your sons and your daughters with you, for they are given as your due and your son's due from the sacrifices of the peace offerings of the people of Israel." The thigh that is contributed and the breast that is waved, they shall bring with the food offerings of the fat pieces to wave for a wave offering before the Lord. And it shall be yours and your sons with you as a due forever, as the Lord has commanded. 
Now Moses diligently inquired about the goat of the sin offering, and behold, it was burned up. And he was angry with Eleazar and Ithamar, the surviving sons of Aaron, saying, Why have you not eaten the sin offering in the place of the sanctuary, since it is a thing most holy and has been given to you, that you may bear the iniquity of the congregation to make atonement for them before the Lord? Behold, its blood was not brought into the inner part of the sanctuary. You certainly ought to have eaten it in the sanctuary as I commanded. And Aaron said to Moses, Behold, Today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me? If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. Well, relationships can be tricky things. I mean, for one thing, you have to know who you're dealing with, right? So uh, we treat different people differently because we have different relationships with them. Uh, so, you know, you, you treat your spouse differently than you do your coworker, or you treat your children differently than you do your spouse. Um, you treat your parents differently than you do your children. Uh, you treat someone you've just met differently than you do an old friend. Relationships, though, are tricky for another reason. Not only do you have to know who, who you're dealing with, who you're interacting with, but Relationships always involve a certain amount of self-denial. To, to have a relationship with someone, in some ways, is to make room for another in my world. Uh, to, to make room for another, then, is to deny myself, right? To allow them to come into my world. And we do this to various degrees, right? Uh, depending on the importance of the person in our lives, um, I haven't changed my life recently for Robert Downey Jr. Uh, or Barack Obama, for that matter, right? Uh, because I don't know these men, and uh, they're not a part of my life. But, on the other hand, I must daily deny myself for uh, my wife, Deborah, for my children, for my friends. Um, I must deny myself for their sakes in order to love them and allow them to flourish. I'm not very good at that, uh, but, but that's what I need to do, right? And uh, think about it. Think about it this way, right? If, if I want to spend time with my wife, if I want to spend time with Deborah, I need to not do certain things. Um, if I go out every night with the guys, I, I can't spend time with Deborah. Now, is going out with the guys sinful? No, it's not, right? It's good for guys to go out together, uh, have a beer together, fellowship with one another. That's good. But if I do that every night, though, I, I can't spend time with my wife. I need to deny myself the one pleasure in order to enjoy the other. And our relationship to our Heavenly Father is really no different. On the one hand, we need to understand who we're dealing with. Right? Who is God? How do I treat Him? Uh, do I treat Him like a friend or like a spouse or like a boss or like a brother? I need to know who I'm dealing with. On the other hand, if I want to draw near to my Father, I need to deny myself. That sounds weird. Hopefully it will become less weird as we go along. As we think through this passage uh, this morning, here's the question, though, I want you to be thinking about, I want you to be asking yourself. Uh, how do I relate to God? How do I relate to my Heavenly Father? Uh, how do I think about Him? How do I approach Him? How do I treat Him? What does that even mean? What does that look like? And we're going to see how the sons of Aaron related to the father, right? 
We're going to see what they thought of him, uh, how they approached him. But actually, the greatest glimpse we'll get of who God is in the passage is actually seen in Aaron's response to the whole episode. So you see our outline this morning. It's on the back of your bulletin if you'd like to follow along. We're going to talk about understanding our Father, approaching our Father, and the compassion of our Father. Understanding our Father, approaching our Father, and the compassion of our Father. And really, uh, you know, there's so much we could say about this chapter and so much we could say about each one of those things. We're really just going to highlight one point under each of those things. Um, when we talk about understanding our Father, we're going to talk about the fact that He is holy. When we talk about approaching our Father, we're going to talk about the fact that we do that through self-denial. And then uh, when we talk about the compassion of our Father, we're ultimately going to see that we see that compassion in the cross, right? Because in the cross, God has drawn near to us so that we can draw near to Him. So understanding our Father. You know, the opening of this chapter, uh, in some ways, should be startling for us. Leviticus chapter 10, verse 1. Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. You know, all of Leviticus has been giving uh, instructions for the Israelites on how to approach God, on what they're to do, on what offerings they're to bring, on, on what they're to do with those offerings when they bring them. Uh, the past two chapters begin with commands and instructions. Leviticus 8 begins, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying... Leviticus 9 begins, On the eighth day Moses called to Aaron and his sons. But chapter 10 begins not with commands, not with instructions, but with actions, and actions that we are specifically told were not commanded. Now, it, it maybe is a little unclear what, what did Nadab and Abihu do that was so wrong. We're told they offered unauthorized or strange fire before the Lord, which doesn't really mean much to us. That just seems like, okay, what, what does that mean? I, I don't understand. Um, and uh, it's a little unclear they, they, it's clear that they do what God commanded them not to do. We're told that, first verse, right away, right? God, they, they do what God had not commanded. But what is it that they should not have done? Well, if you actually turn over to Leviticus chapter 16, Leviticus 16 begins, there God gives instructions for uh, a holy day, the day of atonement, on what's supposed to happen on that day. And Leviticus 16 begins like this. It says, the Lord spoke to Moses after the death of the two sons of Aaron, when they drew near before the Lord and died. And the Lord said to Moses, tell Aaron, your brother, not to come at any time into the holy place inside the veil before the mercy seat that is on the ark so that he may not die. Why does God bring uh, the two sons of Aaron back up, you know, five chapters later, six chapters later? Well, the idea is probably that Nadab and Abihu here in our passage in chapter 10, what they did was they walked into the most holy place bringing incense, offering what God had not commanded. You know, God in Leviticus 16, he goes on, he, he's telling Aaron how rightly to approach him. God commands there that Aaron take a censer full of coals from the fire, which sounds similar to what Nadab and Abihu did. They took censers, they took coals. But he's to take a censer full of coals of fire from the altar and special incense, and that Aaron, only Aaron, one time a year is to come into the most holy place. But here in Leviticus 10, we have these two guys, and they come without the special coals, maybe. Maybe that's what unauthorized fire means. 
It's wrong fire. Uh, not being the high priest, not coming at the proper time, and they come presumptuously into the most holy place, and God strikes them dead, which seems a little harsh to us. I mean, we think that's kind of cruel and unusual punishment. And so we're bound to ask, okay, why does God strike down the two sons of Aaron? What's the big deal? Well, God actually tells us in verse 3. Verse 3, God says, uh, Then Moses said to Aaron, This is what the Lord has said. Among those who are near me, I will be sanctified, and before all the people, I will be glorified. That's God's explanation. Perfectly clear now. We can uh, set this episode aside and move on to the next one. Um, No, God says, uh, among those who are near me, I will be sanctified. Um, Aaron and his son, or Aaron's sons, his two sons, did not sanctify him, which means they didn't treat God as if he were holy. Right? Again, even in human relationships, right, we need to know who we're dealing with. We, we treat different people, rightly so, differently um, at times, though that can be misused and abused. I get that. But, you know, there are different relationships um, and, and uh, something that would be appropriate for my wife is, is not appropriate for my boss or something like that, right? Um, something that would be appropriate for my kids might not be appropriate for my uh, wife and so on. How much more then, if we are going to uh, approach God, do we need to understand who this God is? How should we treat him? What, what does it mean to interact with him? And uh, the two words God uses... Uh, to talk about himself here are holiness and glory. He says, I will be sanctified, I will be treated as holy, and I will be glorified. My, my glory will be known, right? I, I will be treated as holy, my glory will be known. And then uh, later on in, in uh, the same chapter, in verse 10, God says of the priests that their role, the priestly role, their job, is to distinguish between the holy and the common, the clean and the unclean. And so what he's saying is, look, Priests, you need to understand these concepts. You need to understand what it means to be holy, what it means to be common, what it means to be unclean, what it means to be clean. If you are going to approach me, and not only do you need to understand this, you need to teach it to the people as well. The same is true with us, right? In some ways, if we want to understand who God is revealing himself to be, we need to understand a little bit about these categories. So holiness, right? Holiness is, is a really important concept in Scripture, right? Maybe you picked up on that as you've read. Uh, but it's often misunderstood, isn't it? Uh, we often think of holiness uh, as a set of rules. You know, don't drink, don't smoke, don't gamble, right? Don't go to movies, whatever it is, right? And, um, but holiness in Scripture actually isn't even necessarily a moral concept at all which is maybe what's so surprising to us. It's not even, it's not even moral. Uh, holiness is in contrast with the common, the ordinary, the everyday. It means to be set apart, to be distinct, to be different. God is holy because God is different. It's not like us. And one of the ways that God is different is, is again, it's not moral at all, um, but it's, there's, a, there's an ontological distinction, right? I mean, it just means that God is different in his very being from we are, right? He's not the same as us. Uh, God is the creator and we are his creatures. Uh, That's an absolute distinction, right? God is not a little bit creature. We'll talk about Jesus in a minute, but God is not a little bit creature and we are not a little bit creator. God is unmade. We have been made by him. That's a total difference. Um, 
God is holy. He is not like us. And in this sense, we can actually never be holy as God is holy, in this sense, because we can never become the creator. It's not going to happen. Even in heaven, when we're glorified and we're perfect and we're sinless, we still won't be the creator. We're still going to be creatures forever and ever, right? Um, Another way, though, that God is different from us actually is a moral distinction, right? God is righteous and sinless, uh, but we are unrighteous and sinful. And uh, within Leviticus, this is part of the whole clean and unclean distinction. Um, clean and unclean, that, that distinction, clean and unclean, it's not the same as sinless and sinful in the Old Testament. It's not the same distinction. Uh, but <clears throat> to be clean, clean, the clean is about life. It's about order. It's about beauty. It's about harmony. Right? That's clean. But the unclean is about death and about disorder and about ugliness and about disarray. And so these categories of clean and unclean are, are meant to teach us, right? They're bigger than sin and sinful and sinless, but they're meant to teach us about what is good and right and pure. Uh, we know that because Jesus himself said, the unclean is not what comes from the outside, right? But the unclean is, come, is what comes from the inside, that sin dwells in our hearts and comes out. And so God is not only holy in that he's the creator and we are his creatures, but he's also holy in that he is morally pure and clean, but we are impure and our hearts are unclean. And in this way, we, we could be holy as God is holy if our hearts were cleansed. Right? We could be, and we're called to be, if our hearts are cleansed. Now, Nadab and Abihu, right, clearly they don't treat God as holy. They're, they... Um, they um, they don't consider how distinct God is and that approaching him calls for a distinct manner. And uh, if we are to approach God, if we are to draw near to our Father, we must start with understanding this one thing, right, that God is holy. There are other things to be said about God, other things to be said about who he is, but that's what stands out here, isn't it? God's holy character, his holiness, his set-apartness. We're not just dealing with another person, um, this is true even when it comes to Jesus, isn't it? Uh, you know, despite what the t-shirt says, right, Jesus is not my homeboy uh, because he's holy. And uh, he, he's, not just, he's not just another guy, right? He's not just one of the guys. He's holy. Yes, Jesus took on human skin, and, and he became like us. And, we, you know, we have the incarnation, and there's a real sense in which Jesus is one of us. He did become like one of us, right? He, he knows our weakness. He knows our frame. He knows what it's like to be a person and to undergo all the trials and the troubles and the sicknesses that we endure. Yet with the resurrection and the ascension, we actually, you know, Jesus ascends to the Father's right hand, and we see the true glory of Jesus. John, you know, the Apostle John, uh, John, when he sees the resu resurrected Jesus, John, who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, lived with Jesus, ate with Jesus, right? John, whom Jesus loved, we're told, you know, he was the one whom Jesus loved. When John sees the resurrected Jesus in the vision in uh, Revelation, John falls down at Jesus' feet as if he's dead, right? Now, this is the guy he used to eat with, you know? He passed him, you know, here's some fish, Jesus, right? And now, now he sees him in all of his glory, and he falls down as if dead at the, the glory of Jesus, the greatness of Jesus on display. Well, Nadab and Abihu, they, they, they didn't think of God like that. They didn't think of God as glorious. They didn't think of him as holy, 
And one of the results of a Nadab and Abihu's light thoughts of God, uh, we also notice, actually, by contrast with the Leviticus 16, you know, there Aaron was to burn incense before God, but before he ever got to the incense, before he ever got close to the most holy place, Aaron was to bring us a sin offering. Uh, a sin offering was a, a purification offering to cleanse the tabernacle of the offerer's sin. But apparently Nadab and Abihu were not too concerned about their uncleanness because they, 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 brought the, the, they weren't concerned about the uncleanness that they brought into the father's house. But because of their uncleanness, they were struck dead, right? So they waltzed in. They didn't bring a sin offering. They didn't, they didn't purify the house from their sin. They just went right in. They weren't thinking about their sinfulness. They weren't thinking about God's holiness. God's holiness cannot come into contact with impurity, right? Which, of course, puts us in a bad spot um, because Jesus says uncleanness is constantly coming out of our hearts, which is, of course, why Jesus came. First John chapter 1 says, if we confess our sins, that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all unrighteousness. God is holy and we are unclean, but we can come before the Father cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Nadab and Abihu tried to go in without a sacrifice, but we have a sacrifice so that we can draw near. So if we want to relate to our Father, the first thing we have to understand is that He is holy. Um, his, his son is holy. His spirit is holy. Nadab and Abihu didn't get that, so they approached God presumptuously, not through the sacrifice that he had given, not through the high priest that he had appointed, right? And so they died. If we want to relate to our Father, we need to understand our Father. And the number one thing we need to understand is that our Father is holy. Okay, so how do we approach then this holy God, right? How do we approach him then? Well, Leviticus, really the whole book, it's all about drawing near to our Father. Sin brings a separation between God and, and people, but God in his love works to bridge that gap. And God begins in Israel by building a house, a house for him to dwell in in the midst of his people. And Leviticus is, how, is about how to draw near to God in his house. And this house is, is holy space, Right? Um, holy space is just space set aside for God to be present. Again, holy isn't necessarily a moral thing. It's not that the house was upright and righteous and always did the right thing. No, the house was set apart, set aside to meet with God. So this was the space where, uh, for God to do what he wants to do. That means this, this space was not to do, you know, for, it was not for me to do whatever I wanted to do in it or for the Israelite to do whatever he wanted to do in it. This was, this was where God... Uh, this was God's space. And there's a difference for the Israelites for their, between their own tent on the one hand and God's tent. Now, the difference is not uh, in your tent you can sin and that's fine, but not in God's tent. No, that's not the point. But the difference was in your tent you can do what people do. That's okay. Normal people things, common, everyday, ordinary things, ordinary things that's great. But in God's tent, right, God's tent is holy. It's sacred. It's, it's set apart. It's special. Here you come to meet with your Holy Father. God wants to meet with his people, and he has Israel sort of carve out this space in their midst where they can meet with him. Now, as we started out saying, uh, in, in some ways this is true of every relationship, right? I, I need to carve out space in my life, room for people. Um, 
Israel did that physically. They carved out this space for God to meet with them in their midst, in the tabernacle. They had made room for him, uh, almost showing hospitality uh, by creating space in which he might come and meet with his people. In this space, the Israelites denied themselves the right they had in other spaces. They said no to themselves, their own will, their own wants, their own wishes, so that they could meet with their father. What was good for them in their tents was not good for them in his tent. And think about it this way. Have you ever had a guest over to your house and, uh, you know, had them stay over in your home and you've given up your bed so that they could sleep in it? I kind of wish I could say that. I don't know that I've ever done that. That would be really self-sacrificial. But um, I can't think of a time when I've ever done that. I'm looking for Deborah. <laughs> oh, she's saying, yes, we have. Great. I'm glad. <laughs> Makes me feel better. Um, what are you doing when you do that? You are denying yourself to make room for another person that they might come and dwell in your midst. Right? Um, that's what Israel is doing, in a sense, right? Carving out this space. That's what we do for other people. That's what we need to do for communion with our Father. Communion with God necessitates self-denial. It's this idea that highlights the sin of Nadab and Abihu, at least one aspect of it. We could talk a lot about their sin, right? They were presumptuous. They were proud. They were disobedient. They weren't obeying God's law. They weren't listening. They weren't, they weren't honoring their own human father, Aaron, right? I mean, we could, we could list a whole uh, litany of sins that they committed in this in different ways that they were rebellious. But, but behind all of those is that they were not approaching God with an attitude of self-denial, they weren't thinking, I must decrease and he must increase. They weren't thinking, God is holy and I must set aside this space. I must make room for him, his holiness, in my midst. They were approaching God with an attitude of self-assertion. They were kind of pushing themselves on God. Here's the way I want to do things, God, and you need to conform to my will. You know, it's, it's the Burger King way of doing religion, right? They want it their way. They weren't acknowledging God's holiness, his supremacy, his glory. Think, think about your own life, right? Uh, do you recognize the need for daily self-denial in order to have communion with the Father? And, and here's actually the, the, the oddest part. I, I don't even just mean the denial of sinful desires. I mean, that's true. You know, you need to deny sinful desires. Cut sin out of your life and your heart. Put to death what is earthly in you. Put off the desires of the flesh, right? That's true. But I actually mean something more when we think about self-denial. Um, you know, when Jesus said in the Garden of Gethsemane to his father, not my will but yours be done, he wasn't denying a sinful tendency in his heart because he didn't have any sinful tendencies in his heart. And yet he still denied himself and said, not my will but yours be done. So when we take up our cross and follow Jesus, yeah, it includes denying the, the sinful tendencies of our heart, but it's actually more than that. Okay, what does that look like? What does that mean? Um, you know, again, think about people. It helps me to think about human relationships, right? Because that's uh, what we're so familiar with every day. Uh, if you, if you want to live in fellowship with another person, you must deny yourself certain other things in life. In order to make time for another person, you have to stop doing other things. If you want to live in communion and fellowship with God, you must deny yourself legitimate uh, good pleasures at times. Um, think about it. If you want to spend time with your father, 
That means setting aside time with your father. I know that, that maybe isn't that radical, but just think about it. It is. If you want to spend time with your father, you have to set aside time with your father. In order to set aside time to be with your father, that means not doing other things in that moment. Good things, great things, right? Upright things, that's fine, but not doing other things in that moment. Um, denying yourself other things, other pleasures, other joys, Denying yourself those joys in order to spend time with your father, in order for a greater joy. This is part, at least, of what Jesus meant when he said, if anyone would save his life, he will lose it. But if anyone loses his life for my sake and the gospels, he will find it. See, it's as we deny ourselves, as we pursue communion with our father through Jesus, as we set aside things that cannot give life, we find life as it was meant to be in this relationship with our father in heaven. It really, the, the essence of, of drawing near to our Father is found in, in, in self-denial, right? If I want to come near, I have to stop. I have to take off my headphones, right? I have to stop checking my texts so I can spend time with my Father, so I can be in His Word, so I can lay my heart before Him in prayer. It doesn't mean those other things are bad, right? That, we, we always go to that extreme, right? It's like, well, if I have to not do it once, then it must be a bad thing. No, no, it doesn't mean it's bad, just because you might at times not do something for a specific reason doesn't mean those things are bad. But, um, but it's good, right, to stop, to pause. Um, it, yes, there's a walking with God through life, day to day, a daily walking with him. That's, that's kind of different from what I'm talking about right now. The walking with God flows out of communion with him. So, um, you know, I try to walk with, to do life with Deborah. Uh, I, I try to do life with her. We talk about our plans. We, um, we text back and forth. We get the boys ready for bed together, right? Whatever it is, we try to do life together. Um, but that's not in place of, and in fact flows out of, communion with one another, right? So, so when at night, after the boys are in bed, we sit down on the couch and we talk together, right? We just spend time together. We, we, we talk together. Maybe we do something together, watch a movie together, whatever it is. But we're just together. We do stuff together as a couple. We commune with one another, which enables us then to live life together and to walk with one another throughout the day, right? It's not an either or, which is how it is in communion with God. And that's true of Israel, right? What, again, what they did in their tents, they didn't necessarily do in the tabernacle. That was a time when they communed with their father. They walked with God through the desert, but then they communed with him in the tabernacle. And if we're going to draw near to our Father, we have to lay aside other things in order to draw near. Again, that doesn't mean, right, just to, that doesn't mean that you just cut out a little space for Jesus, right, and keep everything else to yourself. That's not what we're talking about. Um, communion with our Father should lead to walking with him, right, day by day, moment by moment, but you can't just walk with him apart from communion with him either. Marriage won't work if you try to do life together, but never actually sit down and talk to one another, right? That, that's not, that won't work. If you're trying to do marriage like that, it won't work, really. Um, the Christian life won't work if you try to walk with Jesus, but never actually stop to listen to his word or to spill out your hearts before him in prayer. If we want to relate to our Father, we must understand that He is holy and we must draw near, which necessitates some level of self-denial. We must make room in our lives for communion with our Father. You have a holy God, right? Stop and draw near to Him. 
Uh, there's one more thing that we need to look at uh, in this passage. If we're to relate to our Father, uh, we need to know that our Father is holy. We need to approach our Father in self-denial, and we need to get the compassion of our Father. We need to get his compassion. The passage, as I've looked at it, I've realized, is, is as much, if not more, about Aaron than it is his sons. I mean, Nadab and Abihu are mentioned really briefly, like in one verse, at least while they're alive. Um, they assert themselves where they should deny themselves. They take prerogatives that aren't theirs. They sin willfully, presumptuously, boldfacedly, and they die. And within a few short verses, their bodies are carried out of the tabernacle. They try to draw close in a way that they shouldn't, and they end up being taken out, not only out of the tabernacle, but out of the camp altogether. Nadab, by the way, the, word, the, the name Nadab means willful, which he was, willful. Uh, but Abihu means he is my father. And Aaron is really the focus of most of the chapter. Aaron is called not to mourn. Aaron and his sons, he's told not to let his hair hang loose in verse 6, um, not to tear his clothes. His sons uh, didn't sanctify God by their approach, but Aaron had to sort of maintain holiness. And somehow it was not fitting for Aaron to mourn. Uh, mourning was a part of death, right? And holiness and death are opposites. So, so Aaron is not to mourn for his sons. He's not to tear his clothes, not to do the typical things that mourning people did in that culture. But it's almost, I don't know about you, it's almost alarming to me how quiet Aaron is. Uh, in verse 3, Aaron's entire reaction to the death of his sons is summed up in the words, and Aaron held his peace. I mean, that's it. You know, your two sons, your oldest sons, most likely, right, uh, struck down dead in a moment, and Aaron held his peace. In verse 6, we're told, Aaron was told not to mourn, and then in verse 7, it simply says uh, that Aaron did according to the word of Moses. Then there are these laws uh, about food. They just keep coming up everywhere in Leviticus. These laws about food, uh, verses 12 through 15, which tell us what Aaron is to eat and what, where Aaron is to eat it. Moses reminds Aaron what portion of which offering he is to have. And uh, then uh, in verse 16, Moses comes and he checks on it. And he realizes that Aaron and his surviving sons let the sin offering burn up rather than eat it. Right? They were supposed to eat this part of the offering. They didn't. They let it burn up on the fire. I feel like I should make a, a, a joke about letting your food burn on the stove, but it probably wouldn't be appropriate. Uh, they let the sin offering burn up, and uh, Moses is pretty ticked off here. He's angry, and he basically says, look, Aaron, you've already lost two sons today. Because they didn't do according to the word of the Lord, right? Come on, Aaron, what are you thinking, right? You, why didn't you eat this? You're, this is your job. You're supposed to eat this portion of the offering. Why didn't you do it? And uh, Aaron's answer is a little ambiguous to us. Uh, it's in verse 19. Aaron says to Moses, uh, Behold, today they have offered their sin offering and their burnt offering before the Lord, and yet such things as these have happened to me. If I had eaten the sin offering today, would the Lord have approved? And when Moses heard that, he approved. 
Moses says, uh, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you eat of this offering? And Aaron says, look, my sons were killed today. Right? Such things as this have happened to me. My sons were killed today. They, they were struck down dead. Yes, I'm not tearing my clothes. I'm not weeping. I'm not leaving the tabernacle. I'm not allowed to do those things. But you can't expect me to eat. You have to understand that in that day, mourning involved fasting, right? Eating and feasting is a part of rejoicing. It's a part of celebrating, right? When you celebrate, you eat. Go to any party, right? There's food because that's the way we celebrate. Not eating, fasting is a part of mourning. It's a way for the whole body to participate in the mourning process. And so what Aaron is saying is, I've got to mourn. Right? Even if silently, even if I don't tear my clothes, even if I'm not loud and wailing and weeping, I've got to mourn. Such things as this have happened to me today. Would it really be acceptable to God? Right? Can I really eat this in a right spirit? Can I pretend these things didn't happen? Uh, can I eat joyfully in what God has done? No, I can't do that. Right? I, need to, I need to weep. I need to acknowledge right, the, the horrible things that have happened this day. And so what we see in Aaron, the high priest, is that despite the fact that those who struck down, those who were struck down, were struck down justly for their own sin because they broke the law of God, despite all that, the high priest himself must weep for them. He must mourn for them. You know, oftentimes uh, when we look at people who have gotten themselves into a place in life where they uh, have gotten in trouble where they uh, need help, where they're hurting, uh, maybe they're broken, impoverished, or homeless, whatever it is. We look at them and we say things like, well, you know, they dug themselves into that hole. They can get themselves out. Or, well, they, they got what they deserved. Um, we look at people through the lens of justice without mercy. And there's a place for justice, right? Uh, clearly, uh, for recognizing the God-given consequences of behavior. That's good. But there's also a time to mourn those very same consequences. Though they are just, there is a time to mourn them. And what we see here in Aaron's own sons is, and Aaron's behavior is that the father must weep at the death of his sons, even though they brought it on their own heads. What we see in Aaron's behavior as, our high, as their high priest is really we see the heart of the father. There's this great verse in Ezekiel. Uh, Ezekiel chapter 18, it says, God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Ezekiel 18, verses 23 and 32. 23 and 32. Um, God does not delight in the death of anyone, Ezekiel 18 says, rather that they should turn from their sinful ways and live. Now, as, as Calvinists, sometimes we miss this, right? Um, We know that God is sovereign and in control. And I have no doubt that God is in control of the destiny of everyone in this room and of everyone in this world. But there is this other teaching in the scripture as well, right? It's not like there's one thing the Bible teaches. There's this other teaching, and it's equal and just as important that that same God who is in control of the destiny of all people paradoxically to our minds because we can't fully understand the infinite go figure right paradoxically to our minds that same god weeps at the death of the wicked 
He weeps at the death of the wicked. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Now you think, well, that, that verse didn't say he weeps in Ezekiel 18. Uh, it, just that he didn't delight in it. You know, not that he was over, you know, he wasn't overly fond of it, but you know, okay. Consider another passage, right? In the New Testament, Jesus is in Jerusalem and he cries out, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Okay, it doesn't say he weeps, but he's lamenting, right? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? And you would not. You would not. Your will was contrary to mine. You were stubborn. You refused my proposals of love. You refused my advances. So Jesus laments at the coming destruction of Jerusalem, the judgment we understand our, you know, Trinitarian theology and, and the incarnation, Jesus is God, right? The judgment he is about to pour out on this city. And he's lamenting at it. Paradoxical? Yes. Confusing? Maybe so. But in Jesus, we see the heart of the Father. Aaron laments over the self-inflicted trouble of his sons. The Father laments over the self-inflicted trouble of humanity, that's the heart of our Father. Our Father takes our pain upon Himself. That is His compassion. And of course, we see that chiefly in the cross, don't we? Where Jesus takes our self-inflicted pain, justly deserved, upon Himself. That we might not have to bear it ourselves. See, often in relationships, we are concerned with uh, parity, right? Uh, that is, we talk about relationships being 50-50. It's a myth, but that's the way we talk about relationships. Uh, because we, what, what we're talking about is we want people, uh, everybody to give into the relationship, right? If you're married, married, we talk about, people talk about it being 50-50. You give and they give. Um, we talk that way because we know sometimes relationships can be abusive, right? Where one person is expected to give everything and the other person just takes, right? And sort of feeds off the other person. When we start talking about God's holiness and our self-denial, uh, we, we get worried, right? That, okay, maybe this is the same kind of deal. Maybe this is some kind of a weird, cosmic, abusive relationship. Um, we get worried. But when we think about the Father's compassion, when we think about the Father's compassion demonstrated in the cross of Jesus, that should calm all of those fears. The Father gave his Son for us. The Son gave His life for us. Uh, there's no 50-50 to this reality, right? There's no 50-50 to this relationship because nothing you give could ever come even close to what God has already given to you. You can't pay Him back. You can't work up to that 50%. You're not at 25 or, or 10 or not, right? Like, no, there's no comparison. If you want to know communion with your Father, look to His compassion for sinners. People like me, people like you, His compassion displayed in the cross where He gave His Son to bear our sins. Know that through Jesus' sacrificial self-denial, we can have our sinful hearts cleansed. We can have access to our holy God. And then deny yourself and take up your cross and follow Jesus and find life as it was meant to be. Let's pray. Our Father, we do pray that you would teach us to find our joy in communion with you and in walking with you. Teach us to find our joy in you and not, not in uh, created things, not in the gifts that you give, 
but in the giver himself. Work that into our hearts, Father, till we realize that it is more blessed to give than to receive, and we are willing to give of ourselves for you and find that joy, find that blessing in you and in our communion with you. Through Jesus, your Son, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.